enjoy that campaign <laughs> <Not> today. <laughs> I'm a simple guy, and we do have a time limit that we need to be aware of this morning. So we're going to get started by breaking this down to two things. The fear of the Lord and the fear of everything else. The fear of the Lord and the fear of everything else. The fear of the Lord means recognizing and having reverence and affection for His sovereignty and holiness. Respecting Him for who He is and responding to Him in trust, worship, obedience, devotion, and service. The fear of the Lord is our anchor in our relationship with Him. I'm going to roll that, roll through that one more time. Some of you guys are actually writing that down. I'm off to a good start in this one. It's amazing how the Word of God will encourage people. The fear of the Lord means recognizing and having reverence and affection for His sovereignty and holiness. Respecting Him for who He is and responding to Him in trust, worship, obedience, devotion, and service. The fear of the Lord is the anchor in our relationship with Him. Verse 7 starts by telling us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And let's make sure that we're clear. It doesn't say it's the beginning of some knowledge or knowledge on certain subjects. It's the beginning of all knowledge. I think it's important that we take a second and talk about the difference between information and knowledge. We define information as facts about something or someone. While knowledge is defined as information, facts, and skills acquired by somebody through education or experience. Knowledge is active. Information is passive. Simply being aware of God is not enough. Shannon preached a month or so ago on Proverbs 3, and he spoke about how knowledge and wisdom are different, how knowledge is actually a component of wisdom, and how wisdom isn't a door that you walk through, but a path that you walk down. Every path has to have a starting point. And the starting point for knowledge, wisdom, and understanding what we see here in Proverbs 1-7 is the fear of the Lord. Our family lives in Wood Creek. I guess you could say our second home is the park at Billy Stevenson Elementary School in Wood Creek. We find ourselves there often. Jessica, Emma, Eliana and I were there a week ago. While we were there, three teenage kids walked up. Eliana loves teenagers. I don't know what her fascination is with the teens, but she loves them. And I was just blown away by their conversation. I was eavesdropping on everything that they were saying. And that drives Jessica crazy. Because she knows. She knows that I'm looking for an on-ramp to just insert myself into other people's discussions. That's kind of what I do. But I was so blown away by their dialogue. First, it was an actual live dialogue. It was kind of cool to see. And the things they were talking about was deep. Deep, deep. To give you guys an example, one of the things they were talking about was slavery. Two African-American and one white teenage kids debating slavery. I'll admit, I was, I was scared for a minute. I started to inch closer to where they were because I thought I might have to keep somebody from getting beat down. Part of me wanted to leave because I didn't want to end up in the inevitable YouTube video of the playground beatdown. <laughs> Local church elders, small the playground meeting. It started with a debate about slavery. Not, not real interested in that. I started getting closer. I was getting ready to dive in. Jessica started to give me the look. You guys know, you men know what I'm talking about. 
Please don't make me flock out the only one. And don't you dare do it, look. Right? Which that evening transitioned into the it's almost Eliana's bedtime look, which I think might be worse than the don't you dare do it look. But I, I was. I was fascinated by the different discussions they were having. At one point, they were talking about how people should be viewed who did, who did things that were right at the time, but that ultimately ended up being viewed as wrong or ended up being wrong. And I couldn't help myself. I cannonball right into the middle of their conversation. We talked about how they kept coming back to the same root issue. Who ultimately decides what is right and wrong? Temporarily or for eternity? Do we look through the lens that history or society or the government gives us to determine what is right or wrong? It reminded me of a quote that I really like by C.S. Lewis that says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge because the recognition reverence and respect for who God is should be the lens that we see everything through. It should be the foundation that everything in our lives is built on. If you build something with a foundation that isn't secure or without a foundation, you can expect that everything that you put on top of it is going to move and shift over time. You can have Chip and JoJo decorated. It doesn't matter how good they make it look. That isn't going to keep it from moving or potentially crumbling. For those of you that have been with us for a while, you're probably aware by now that every August, as Shannon alluded to, he gets a much-needed break from the pulpit to kind of rest and recharge and lay the groundwork for 2018 planning. I knew he was probably going to ask me if I'd be open to filling in. Typically, when that happens, he calls me and gently will suggest what he wants me to speak about. Kind of keeps the training rules on me a little bit. I think I caught him at the end of a long, exhausting day because he was like, pick whatever you want in Proverbs or something. <laughs> and I knew instantly when he said that I was going to speak about Proverbs 1-7 and specifically the fear of the Lord. I got a little worried after I committed to doing the text because I went home and I opened up one of my trusty study Bibles and I was going to take a look at some of the commentary to get started and there wasn't any. I called Shannon and I said, I'm a little upset John MacArthur right now um, eventually I found um, an abundance of study material that isn't why I picked this text I picked this text because of how real and tangible it is for me doing what I do best even up here being selfish and making new government before I came to Christ I was running the American dream down at a furious pace I married my high school sweetheart who was and is way above my head. I joined the military. I did not see combat overseas, but I did get selected to do some really cool things. I got a great technology sales job and a white picket fence. I made that up, no white picket fence. But that's the textbook picture of success, isn't it? I was doing everything that the world told me I should be doing and was good at. I was self-reliant and self-made. And I was miserable. I know there are many of you here that know my story, and for those of you that don't, I'm more than willing to spend time with you more on one to talk through it, but I made some decisions that were very poor, brought me to my knees. They literally felt like they were killing me. 
I remember before Jessica and I separated that uh, she told me that I looked like a walking corpse. That's how bad it was. When I tasted the love and grace and mercy of Jesus, I understood what being born again meant, even though I can not point you to any of the texts that spoke to it. Suddenly the world was different because the lens in which I was viewing everything was different. I wish I could tell you guys what day that was. I was so lost and so dark that I didn't know Tuesday from Friday, 2 a.m. from 2 p.m. I know I was 28, and I even get that wrong sometimes when people ask me. 26, I think. Probably because I'm aware of how much I needed Christ at 26. I want those two years back. I wish I could get them. I remember where I was in the moment. I remember knowing that there would never be anything more important to me than my relationship with Christ. I remember waking up every day and praying and thanking God for saving me and praying for the restoration of my relationship with my wife. I remember going to church every week and crying all over the place, which I think freaked Jessica out more than anything. And I still hear about, still hear about the fact that I didn't cry at my wedding. That still comes up from time to time. I would stand and I would sing with everybody and I would say, all I have is yours. That's what we come to church and we say, isn't it? All I have is yours. Until he asked for it. I think in our head we see an ask like that as something along the lines of giving away everything we own and moving to the inner city. Or giving away everything we own and going to some remote area of the world to take the gospel to unreached people groups. And sometimes it is. And we're grateful for the people that answer that call. We have some of those people here in this church. But that isn't always the way it goes. It hasn't been for me. Not yet, at least. Well, I prayed for the restoration of my marriage. I remember just how much I was holding on to the control of it all. I knew I wanted to do the God-honoring thing. I knew I wanted to love Jessica well. But I also thought, man, if she knows it all, she's gone. And I was terrified. But I felt God leading me. I felt Him leading me to let go of that control and to focus on Him. I didn't think it would work. I thought loving Jessica well meant focusing more on her than anything else. And I wrestled with God over it. But I started to understand that there was something that was holding me back and that was keeping me from the intimacy with God that I so desperately wanted and needed. And that something was the fear of everything else. Afraid of losing Jessica. Afraid of what people would think and losing my image of success. Being a family man. I hit my knees. And I told him, all I have is yours. He wanted control. He wanted my focus. And I gave it to him. <clears throat> and that was the start of my marriage being restored. I was so grateful. But I was still such a baby Christian. I didn't really even know what it meant. And I certainly didn't expect him to come ask for something else so quick. 
I thought maybe all I have is yours is kind of a test or a, you know, one and done type of thing. But all I have is yours is not a one and done type of deal. It's an everyday type of thing. Scripture tells us it's taking up our crosses daily. Shannon's going to be preaching on here in the weeks ahead. He asked for control and I gave it to him. A few months later, he asked for my job. And I didn't understand. It didn't make any sense to me. He wasn't leading me to a different job. And so my mind instantly started to race ahead. How am I going to provide for my family? What's going to happen when I lose my place professionally? How can I maintain and keep up that professional image? I just got really wrapped up in the fear of everything else. I remember walking in the hand of my boss my resignation letter. He was an atheist at the time. And he asked me where I was going to go work. I was going to work for a competitor. And I told him I wasn't going to go work for anybody else. And by the grace of God, I was going home to continue to work on my family. I'll never forget him sitting back in his chair and giving me a look. Like, come on, man. I know you recently joined Team Jesus, but it's not good to lie. Nobody leaves a good job without already having another job. I said the same thing my dad told me. He asked me how I was going to provide for my family. It's another question that my dad asked me. I told him the same thing I told my dad. I didn't know. The only thing I knew is that I was stepping out of faith. My dad's response was a lot more colorful than that. <laughs> He called me the next day and he said, would you consider taking a leave of absence for six months instead of submitting the resignation? I talked to HR. We're willing to give you benefits. The only condition is that when you decide to come back to work, that you give us first round of refusal to come back here. So sure, it's great. It's a blessing. A few weeks after I got back from my leave of absence, he was fired for reasons I wasn't aware of at the time. A couple of months after that, on Easter Sunday, my phone started blowing up with a phone number that I didn't recognize. After the first six or seven times they called, I figured that something might be wrong, and so I eventually answered it, and it was Steve. He told me he needed me to come see him right then. I told him it was Easter Sunday, and I was home with my family. He pleaded with me to come see him. I told him I would. And he gave me the address for Valley Hope. It's the Drug and Alcohol Treatment Center in Grapevine. I got there. We walked back to his room. He sat down on his, his bed. I could tell he was really embarrassed. I felt right at home. I'd been in so many of those places with my mother. And he told me how afraid he was. But then he asked me. He asked me to tell him about the faith that I spoke of on the day of my resignation. Amen. That Easter Sunday, by the grace of God, it was the start of Steve's relationship with Jesus and the beginning of his sobriety. We still meet every year around that time and celebrate his new birthday. That's all part of the crash course that I got in the fear of the Lord the first year 
that I follow Christ. I wouldn't believe it myself unless I lived through some of it. And that's not even, that's not even all of it. It wasn't long after that Easter Sunday with Steve that I got another phone call from another buddy of mine I've been in the military with. We both been in the Marines together. He had been an officer and I was enlisted. He called and asked me to have lunch. Most people know that I love Asian food, so he asked me to meet him at Payway. I told him I love Asian food. <laughs> so I appreciated the gesture. That's where we met. And uh, as, soon as, as soon as we sat down, God was pressing me. Don't tell him. Don't tell him everything's awesome. Don't give him that standard small talk. And that started the debate. Maybe some of you guys know what I'm talking about. God, I mean, technically, relatively speaking, things are lost. Tell him. Tell him what the last year's been like for you and Jessica both. I don't want to tell him. I don't know him very well. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. Tell him about me. God, he already knows you. He knows you're perfect. This isn't about you. It's about me. He's so successful. He's got it all together. I'm just so concerned about what he's going to think. Laser focused on the fear of everything else. I told him. And he stirred his food for a minute. And then he got up and left. Didn't even look at me. Didn't say a word. I looked at the heavens and thought, I don't know what your definition of success is, but I'm not sure that's it. A few weeks after that, I'm at my desk at work. Phone starts to ring. I was in the middle of something. I didn't answer it. My cell phone starts to ring. So I answer it. The voice on the other says, what are you doing? I'm working. He says, I know. I'm parking in the parking lot next to your car. I need you to come talk to me from there. So I walk outside and I get in this car, making sure that I'm in a position to defend myself or get out of the car pretty quick because the whole thing seemed pretty weird. <laughs> and he asked me if I remember the lunch that we had. Yeah. Kind of hard to forget. And he tells me that he couldn't look at me or say anything because he was paralyzed with fear. Caught up in a relationship outside of his marriage. And he didn't know how to get out. He wanted out. But he was afraid. Afraid of what his wife might think. Afraid of what might happen to his business. Afraid of what his friends would think. The fear of everything else is caring more about what we think or what other people think than what God thinks. When we elevate what we think or what other people think above what God thinks, we're not fearing God, we're fearing man. If the fear of the Lord anchors us to Him, the fear of everything else anchors us to ourselves or our circumstances. Some of you might be asking yourself, how do I know if I fear the Lord? Or you know what, I'm caught up in the fear of everything else. How do I work through that? So let's talk through a couple of ways you can do that. The first is that you recognize the Lord for who He is. I think our current culture misses this. In fact, I think a lot of people in the North American church miss this. 
So let me start, let me actually start by saying who he isn't. He isn't just a person, and he isn't our home. I don't care what the t-shirt says, and I don't care who the pastors are who wear the t-shirts when they're preaching. There is the God we want, and there is the God that is. And those are usually not the same God. Emma, I'm read a book this summer called The Giver. I have absolutely no idea what it's about. But that sounds kind of like the God that we want, doesn't it? The Giver God? I think when we think about God, we want a God that's like a stereotypical grandparent. Somebody that will stay up past our bedtime. Let us break the Guinness Book World Records for the time spent on social media. Sugar us up. Give in to our every whim and desire and then send us out the door. And say, thanks for stopping by. Come on back. Whenever it's convenient for you. There are a lot of professing Christians who are satisfied with Christ as their Savior. Fewer people are interested in knowing Him as Lord. But He is the Lord of Lords. And He is the King of Kings. He is the Creator of the universe. Our Father in Heaven. Our Protector. And our Savior. He is also a just judge. I know that people don't line up to attend churches that speak often of judgment. Because judgment reminds us of sin. I have a question for us today, church. When we think about sin, do we think more about the effect that it has on us? Or do we have an awareness of the effect that it has on the Lord? When was the last time we felt the gravity of our sin as a betrayal against God instead of something that's inconvenient or painful for us? Let's think about that for a second. Our sin and disobedience bring pain to the heart of our Creator. That is a very sobering thought. Not speaking very often about judgment doesn't make it less real or less true. It's one of the things that teach us about God. It's one of the things that remind us that we're a people that cannot save ourselves. It's one of the things that brings us to the foot of the cross. The fear of the Lord is healthy for us. Because it humbles us. It reminds us of who we are. By making it clear who we are. We're not the boss. To have knowledge and be wise, you have to start with the proper recognition reverence and respect for God. The second way you know you fear the Lord, it can work through the fear of everything else, is to spend time with Him. Yourself. Coming to church on Sunday is great. I hope I see each of you back here next week and you bring a friend. Life groups are great. If you're not in one, you should check one out. Our family has been blessed beyond measure by the people in the community here at Redeemer Church. We know the scripture calls us to biblical community. But nothing, nothing can fill the need that we all have to spend time alone with God in prayer and reading His Word. 
Steve Welsh spoke last week, and he said, when it comes to the Word of God, we need to be scuba divers and not swimmers. Scripture is a word, it's, Scripture is not a word about God. Scripture is the word of God, and as Steve said last week, it's our instruction manual. Finally, you know you fear the Lord, and you can work through the fear of everything else. If you walk in His ways, and you keep His commandments. Scripture makes this pretty clear for us. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. We can sum this up today in one word. Obedience. Obedience can be a very misunderstood and very tricky word. So much so that I wanted to avoid it today out of fear. But that really wasn't going to work today. No more. I really couldn't, couldn't skip past that one. When we talk about obedience, we're not talking about earning our salvation. Salvation is free. You can't earn or work your way to heaven. We're talking about obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Belief comes before behavior. But it doesn't make sense to believe in Jesus and to proclaim Him as Lord and not obey Him. Obedience is not an emotion or feeling. Emotions and feelings can lead us to places we shouldn't go. Feelings are real, but they aren't always true. I say that all the time. I don't know where it originated, but I ripped it off of a really good guy I worked with in a really lot. Our tendency to defer to our emotion and feelings is one of the reasons why obedience is so important. There's only one way we can be obedient. This ties back to the second one. We have to take the Bible seriously. How else are we supposed to know what to be obedient to? I think both Stanley and Steve asked the question, who do we run to in times of trouble? Do we care more about what people think? Or about what God thinks. Stanley said that who we run to in times of trouble shows us who we trust the most. And church, let me tell you, there is nothing more trustworthy than the truth of God's word. Absolutely nothing. Scripture tells us that a fool has no regard for God's word. That's what we see here in verse 7 as it closes with the words, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Without God, the world doesn't make sense. And we're a fool when we think that we can find meaning or purpose apart from Him. But that doesn't keep us from trying, does it? It didn't keep Solomon from trying either. King Solomon, the son of David and Bathsheba, the OG Renaissance man. He built the temple of God, so he had an eye for architecture and design. He could write. He wrote some of the Psalms, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Psalms. He accumulated more fame and wealth than probably anybody in history. He had more money than Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Jeff Bezos combined. Not sure about Putin, though. I don't know that anybody's sure how much money that is. He was a great teacher. If he were alive today, all the leaders of NATO, the UN, the GA nations, 
Oprah, they would all come seek Solomon's counsel. Solomon pursued every possible avenue to find meaning apart from God. His own accomplishments, power, wealth, fame, pleasure, and he ended up hating his life. These are his words from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest and growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born at my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did. I did not keep them from. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. Behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon lost his way. Solomon lost his way because he lost the fear of the Lord. He closes Ecclesiastes with these words from chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The fear of everything else can be paralyzing. It can make you feel trapped and hopeless. The fear of the Lord brings comfort and hope and peace. We don't fear the Lord because He terrifies us. We fear the Lord because we're gripped by His greatness. You guys have heard about some of my own personal experiences. You might be making a mistake to think I've kind of got the fear of the Lord thing a little bit handled. But I don't. Even over the course of the last week in my own life, <clears throat> as I see clouds forming and days of uncertainty ahead, there's one thing. The fear of everything else that keeps me from the intimacy with God that He desires and I so desperately need. If I channel my inner Duncan Dawson, and I run us all the way back to Genesis. I wonder what the world would look like if Eve had more fear of the Lord than she did on the fear of missing out on the fruit. I wonder what our walk with God would look like individually and corporately if we feared Him more than we feared anything else. The only fulfilled life is a God-fearing one. Live in the proper recognition, reverence, and respect for who God is. Redeemer Church, it's my hope that when the community of faith 
looks at this group of people here, that they see a God-fearing people. Because that will be a people marked by the love and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for who you are and for what you've done. Father, as we work just through the busyness of everyday life, Father, as we work through the fear of so many things, the fear of medical problems and job problems and relationship problems, Father, I pray that as chaotic and distracting as all that might be, that it wouldn't take our eyes off of the thing that is most important. And that's the recognition of who you are and what you've done for us. Father, I pray that you would help us learn and grow and walk in obedience. Father, I pray that we would be drawn to the truth of your word. I pray that we would be drawn to spending time alone with you in prayer. Father, I pray that we would continue to be drawn to biblical community. Father, I do pray for a broken world. Every time you turn on the news or you read about something, it seems that you're reading about people that can't get along, that are getting caught up through the lens of their own lens of what is right and wrong. And God, we know that there is only one answer to that, and that answer is you. But God, I pray for the people here at Redeemer Church, because when I look out at the community, I see a need. I see a need for people to step up and step into the lives of others to love and serve them well. And God, I pray that you would give us the strength and encouragement to go and do just that. Father, we love you. We praise you. We ask for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.